Hey there, this is Natalie Argarius, Managing Editor of The Urbanist, and you're listening to The Urbanist Podcast. This podcast is an offshoot of The Urbanist online publication, and like the articles we publish and the educational events we hold, it's devoted to news, information, and ideas about how to improve cities and quality of life. Today, I'm joined by reporter Ray Dubicki, and we're going to chat about a whole bunch of things related to downtown Seattle. So I got to have a pretty good weekend this weekend where folks uh, came up from Los Angeles and visited me. Uh, It was pretty interesting because it was the first time we had folks in town um, in two and a half years now. And we actually went downtown to do some touristy things. Um, The big stops were what the big stops always are. We hopped on the bus. We went down to Pike Place Market. We actually had tickets for the Space Needle. Um, and then we came on back up to the neighborhood and and we came up after dark. Uh, and so I'm curious to know, because I feel like whenever I explore a place that's really familiar with me um, through the eyes of somebody who's new to that place, what were some of the things that your L.A. visitors noticed that you might take for granted as, as somebody who lives in Seattle? Um, so it it's uh, the folks that were visiting. Uh, were a buddy of mine and his wife, who've been friends of ours for a long while, and they're two kids. They're two uh, just under middle school age kids. Um, And the kids adored the bus because they don't get to ride the bus that often in L.A. Um, But one of the other big things, uh, so we went into Pike Place Market, and right off the bat, uh, my friend looked around and said, they like cars in here? That doesn't make any sense. That doesn't make any sense at all. And that felt totally rewarding because... We don't really want cars in Pike Place Market. Yeah, that's been a topic of conversation for a long time. And as far as I know, one of the main arguments for keeping that street open has been the question of delivery and also people picking up purchases from the market. When you were there, did you see people who seemed to be actively engaged in some kind of pursuit driving there? Did they seem lost, confused? (laughs) There was a whole lot of confusion, mostly of people wondering why in the world there was a car honking them out of the way. But there was also construction right in the middle of the street. Like half of the street was torn up. So you couldn't actually move past the cheese shop and past all uh, the old Starbucks. Um, none of that stuff was open. So it was very difficult to actually move down the street. See, to me, that seems like it would lend itself to a natural experiment. If you're going to dig up the street anyway, then see what it's like to, at the very least, restrict some of the access to cars. One thing that was really interesting that we ran into was um, downtown's not totally open again. There's a lot of stuff that we just had to kind of kill time, and there weren't a whole lot of comfortable places. Uh, So we had tickets to go up the Space Needle at a certain point, and I'm not a big fan of heights, so I wasn't particularly looking forward to it, Um, but I wasn't about to drag the kids to a whole bunch of, uh, you know, rampant alcoholism in order to get me up the elevator. I just swallowed my pride and got the tickets. Um, the weird part about having to kill time in post-pandemic downtown is there just isn't a place to sit. Um, you just find, I, I think you could normally just find a spot, park it there for a little while, but there is this need to turn over or wear a mask or things like that. And it was just the edge of Chile So it wasn't really comfortable to have a seat. See, that's really interesting because for me, one of the things I always associate with 
any kind of dense urban area, be it a downtown or, you know, a neighborhood that has really active street life is just simply enjoying being around other people, um, people watching, being a, a flaneur myself, you know, wandering around, observing. And it's true that with this pandemic, it's not as comfortable to do that. You feel like you have to have a reason to be where you're supposed to be. Um, but my experience has largely been pretty positive when I've been in downtown Seattle recently. Now, I haven't brought in out-of-town guests, and so I've only had to go there to do the things that I want to do. But I, I haven't really noticed empty streets. I haven't felt particularly unsafe. Um, and I was interested to read um, just this week, actually, that in Portland, supposedly the situation is pretty different. The Portland Business Alliance published um, a report this week stating that their downtown visitors are down by about 40%, which is significant. And while the report did not um, go into depth about comparisons with other cities, I wasn't able to find exact statistics for Seattle, but it appears that um, Seattle's visitor numbers are not nearly as low. I think we have a whole bunch of active neighborhoods with people living right around downtown. Uh, Belltown, it's not as hopping as it was, but there are plenty of folks that are moving around. Um, when we were walking around down there, it was we were able to actually sit down and find a table to eat at, um, which normally on a, Saturday, on a Saturday or a Sunday would be really difficult right around lunchtime. Um, but we got in and we ate and that was part of the reason we had to end up killing time, unfortunately. But that's, Seattle does have the ability to keep residents downtown. How many people downtown do actually move? So I started looking into, so, okay, so at The Urbanist, you know, when this pandemic was going on and everybody was saying the downtowns are going to disappear, we're all moving to the exurbs, you know, get to the car dealership as fast as you can because otherwise the SUVs are going to sell out. A few of us were like, wait, hold up a second, let's rethink this. And one of the things we started thinking about was the fact that residential downtowns are really popular in other parts of the world. And they remained popular even during the pandemic because let's face it, nobody wants to go outside and not see other living beings. And one of the best parts about living in a downtown neighborhood is that you can go outside and see other people, even if you're wearing masks, even if you're keeping your six feet of distance, you don't feel nearly as alone. And Seattle has actually a pretty large residential population in its downtown in comparison with other U.S. cities. If you were to compare us to European cities or cities in much of Asia, I'm, I'm sure we wouldn't suck up. I keep thinking about the stats that show Seattle lost population because we ran a highway through the middle of it in the 1960s, and those 40,000 people didn't show back up until almost the 2000 census. And a lot of that probably came from the Belltown boom. You know, it's incredible to think about that, right? The fact that the construction of Interstate 5, the construction of the viaduct, both resulted in a ton of displacement in the downtown area. But at that time, the thought was that those areas were overcrowded, they were undesirable, and the important thing was to start opening up lands outside of the city for development so that people could build houses, make money, sell them to people with money. One of the things we keep hearing about going on downtown is a lot of crime, and I'm really happy to say that we didn't, we didn't witness a lot of crime. 
Um, two things about crime going on downtown. One, there's actually new grocery stores opening up. There's a PCC, if I'm correct, right? That opened up really recently. That was right under the new uh, university tower, the one that looks like a high-heeled boot. Um, and then the other one's an H-Mart right next to Pike Place Market. There's a H-Mart that's opening up in Capitol Hill near the light rail as well, but I didn't know that they had a downtown location. Yeah. the A lot of the things that we keep hearing on the news seem geared towards keeping folks out of downtown, but it's just actually being downtown was comfortable. It Well, the temperature wasn't comfortable because it wasn't, it was almost below 40 degrees. But besides that, we had a good time. Um, and I have to do, I do have to say that like, I don't really like the heights of the Space Needle or the elevator to get up there, but the glass floor is pretty rad. <laughs> yeah, it is fun to look down. Um, I had the opportunity to go to the Space Needle last summer when my in-laws were in town, and it was really fun to see that. It's a it's a surreal experience. Now, I do want to point out that um, when my in-laws visited, and they were actually um, in the Seattle area for a few months, so we went into downtown several times, they always pointed out the visible homeless population. And it's something that commonly comes up as a challenge with our downtown and that, you know, the city has professed to want to make progress on. And I don't doubt that people want to make progress on this, but it seems to be an intractable issue. And we just had a new city initiative announced last week, um, which will be a public-private partnership. And as part of this, um, there's going to be $10 million of private funding invested in trying to... um, I don't know. I don't even know the words for it anymore. I feel like it keeps changing, but address homelessness, reduce homelessness, transition people to housing. What do you, what do you think is the best? What, what terminology should we be using at this point, Ray? Um, avoiding paying taxes. Okay. Ah, so the cynic comes out right away. You know, we're not using public funding. We're using private funding. I mean, it's own, $10 million is nothing to shake a stick at, but it's what? One twentieth of what we're collecting from the employment tax uh, that so many of these same people that donated the 10 million bucks railed against. And I, you can immediately see why. When they control the spigot to say, oh my gosh, I want my $10 million to have a photo op with the mayor about this new program. So I'm curious... I mean, when I, I think one of the things that makes me feel a little skeptical as well when I read this information is the fact that um, it is the downtown and the Chinatown International District that is targeted initially for these efforts. And, and it's not because there isn't need there. There obviously is. But when we look across the city, there are other parts of the city as well in which there are visible homeless populations. Um, I think specifically about Soto. Why would we be working to try to make homelessness um, disappear from the downtown? I shouldn't say disappear, um, become less visible, but yet an, an area like Soto, um, which, which has a lot of people living in vehicles, but also people living in tent encampments, um, it seems to get ignored. I'll put on the cynic hat once again and point out that Channel 7's headquarters is right along 3rd Avenue. And Channel 5's headquarters is right next to the stadiums. And you can see when they do their person on the street interviews, they are standing out in front of their studio 
facing into these situations and not walking too many blocks in any direction. So, to... are they are you are you saying this is laziness, or they're simply they're simply saying, okay, I observe this every day. I want everyone to know. I I will be generous and say it's absolute laziness because I have other much harder words to come up with. So, okay, another thing I'm curious about is you were there during the weekend when, you know, there are people who are, they're not working, they have plenty of recreational reasons, like the ones that you had to get into our downtown. But we want a downtown that thrives every day of the week, right? That is, quite honestly, 24-7 downtown. And one of the things that will probably help to return that if we don't have some massive growth in a residential population is office workers returning, at least during those business hours. So Weyerhaeuser or Weyerhaeuser, I, I always fumble with this, they'll be returning to their Pioneer Square headquarters in April. Um, employees will have the chance to work in a hybrid capacity. But one of the reasons that they had cited for delaying the return was safety concerns in the neighborhood. Now, another notable employer in downtown is Amazon. And we've not heard a word from Amazon yet about their plans to return workers to their office spaces. I imagine some Amazon workers are already on site, um, but there's been nothing published about this, no official statements. Ray, do you have any any thoughts on on why, you know, the behemoth is keeping its mouth shut on this front? The, the cynical side. <laughs> the cynical side says they want to hold us over a barrel in order to emphasize how many new employees are going to Bellevue. Um, I don't know how much I'm actually going to portray that. <sighs> So it's like a hostage event. I had not thought about it in that way, but that's a fascinating interpretation. I think they're, I think they're sorting out two different things. I think they're sorting out how much space are they going to need and what are they going to need that space for? Um, I heard a talk from somebody a while back, uh, one of the big tech industry um, real estate leads, and they pointed out they're moving towards a model of people being in the office three times a week, three times a month, or three times a year. And those three different types of employees need very different things. Where the three times a year person comes in, they're gonna need HR, they're gonna need their equipment people, and they're not really gonna need to hotel desk it. Whereas the three times a week person is going to need almost up to a door in order to have an honest to goodness office. So uh, I think Amazon's starting to sort through some of those issues, um, but maybe somebody in charge has their boat stuck somewhere in Copenhagen. So this kind of reminds me of um, something really cool I learned about a few months ago in a conversation with a group called B&H Architects. They're a global architectural firm, but they do have a team that is in Seattle. And they created the design for what they're calling the Untower. And the Untower was really a response to the pandemic in that it's a tower. So the the Un, I don't I don't know. It is a tower. It is a tower. But it's a tower that is actually built to code to serve different purposes. So it is built to code for office space, commercial space, hospitality, and residential space so that its use can be transformed according to need. And they described to me, you know, visions of a future in which a major, um, a major company like Amazon would say, okay, we actually need to bring in 100 workers. We'd like them to work on site. So we are going to transform this space that we previously had as office space 
into either housing space or hospitality space, depending upon the need for this period of time, which I found to be fascinating. Um, they also talked about how they were going to reorganize the office space for these hybrid work environments so that you could have better participation in conferences that you know people were attending both virtually and in person. Um, you could also have the office spaces move so that you know perhaps sometimes people need to work independently other times they're working in teams of varying sizes. Everything would be modular. You know, we've been talking about, you know, this modular future, I feel like in housing and design for a long time. But for me, this is like the real extreme example of this. And I think it sounds so cool, but I'm sure just like right now there's this backlash against open floor plants in housing. Sometime in the future, if this untower takes off, there's going to be a backlash against it. And people are going to be like, damn it, I just want my house to be a house. I don't want it to also be my office. I think I think that'll be at the very top of everybody's list as we move out of pandemic where they're like, please don't make me do yoga in my living room anymore. I just, as you said that, I just had this vision because I do yoga in my living room and I have three pets that I just sometimes I can't really keep them out of the space including a cat who can be wonderful to do yoga with um, because he's cuddly and he's very calm and it's sort of sweet and then he attacks <laughs> what is the yoga position for attacking a cat back one one well there is the cat cow you know which is a very famous there's that cat back where you arch your back um, his is more like a, you know, grab you by the ankle and then start kicking. I, I don't know where it comes from. So I think the last thing that I just wanted to talk about with downtown um, is the fact that the the Seattle DSA, um, our downtown business alliance representatives, downtown Seattle Association, they're going to be hosting their annual state of downtown event um, in March. It's going to be March seventeenth, and it has a, a pretty famous uh, keynote speaker. Richard Florida, who is best known for writing The Rise of the Creative Class. Um, most recent book is The New Urban Crisis, which is all about how cities are fueling inequality. So it'll be interesting to see what gets discussed and what does not also get discussed at this event, since it does seem to be pretty business oriented. Where are they having that? Somewhere downtown. <laughs> Bellevue. They're going to have it in Bellevue. <laughs> that would be the real kicker. <laughs> Well, that's all for today, folks. Thank you very much for listening to the Urbanist Podcast. We appreciate your support and look forward to continuing to bring you more episodes in which we dive into all sorts of topics related to urbanism. If you like what you heard today, we also highly encourage you to check out our online publication at theurbanist.org.